President Biden withdraws his ATF director nominee after a series of exclusive reports from the reload, and an interview with BCDL President Phil Bankley. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stephen Gutowski. I'm the host of the Weekly Reload Podcast and the founder of TheReload.com. I'm here with contributing writer Jake Fogelman to talk a little bit about this week's news. We're going to start with the biggest news of the week, I think, which was that President Biden withdrew his ATF nominee after a series of uh, exclusive stories were published in The Reload about allegations he had made uh, racist comments while working in the ATF's Detroit division and that a black agent had accused him of trying to effectively end his career by uh, alleging he'd cheated on a promotion assessment. Uh, the agent claims that essentially Chipman had a racial motivation for making that complaint and also that the investigation that followed exonerated him from Chipman's uh, allegations and he was effectively cleared but his career had been sidetracked for several years at that point and he he retired shortly after that uh the doj had confirmed that Chipman did initiate a investigation into a, an agent during his career the ATI, the uh, doj did not give details on anything else beyond the, the existence of the investigation they didn't say what the outcome was. The agent obviously claimed he was cleared uh, and they wouldn't release the investigation either to the reload or to Congress. Senator Grassley has requested a copy of it from the uh, Office of Inspector General who carried out the investigation at the time. Uh, but either way, these stories damaged his uh, chances at the nomination and now the president has pulled him after failing to get even 50 Democratic votes. They, they didn't need support from any of the Republicans. They only needed the Democratic caucus to get him through, and they could not accomplish that uh, and decided to pull him this week. So, Jake, you wrote a little bit about what the White House is saying now, what they said about this decision, what they said about uh, Chipman. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown on what, what, they're, what they're saying? Sure. So uh, a couple hours after the, the news broke that he was likely going to have his nomination pulled, uh, the White House released a statement uh, where the president, you know, essentially stood by Chipman, um, lavished praise, saying he was, had, had a great career in the ATF, uh, had the support of law enforcement, would have been a great ATF director, um, but he was pulling him anyway. Um, and he proceeded to blame Republicans and the gun industry for his demise, essentially saying the Republicans did everything they could, stood in lockstep to block this nomination. Um, he didn't acknowledge the fact that a couple of senators, as you pointed out, on his own side were uncomfortable with the nomination. Yeah, uh, Angus King would be one of the key uh, dissenters. Uh, he's an independent from Maine, but he caucuses with Democrats. And you also had Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Possibly and, Tester. Uh, John Tester as well. Yeah. Um, so, that yeah, it was really the issue was with getting Democrats on board. But you're right. The president did blame Republicans who all came out publicly against Chipman's nomination, which was sort of a rare show of total unity on, on, sure. on a nominee. Even the moderate Republicans, like Susan Collins, was one of the first ones to, to come out and say she was not going to vote for Chipman. 
So, mm -hmm. yeah, after the, the White House's statement, um, Jen Psaki gave a, a press conference where she was asked, you know, kind of to, to reiterate the president's thoughts on the matter. Um, and she pointed out that uh, they're actually looking for another role for Chipman, possibly in the administration. So this might not be the last yeah. we've seen of David Chipman. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they try to put him. They've said they don't want to create a gun czar, as, as some of these right. gun control groups have pushed for in the past, uh, this sort of cabinet level but not Senate-confirmed position. Uh, the, you know, the president says he doesn't want to do that, but he's going to find some other role for Chipman, which is interesting because there's all these uh, unresolved questions about his his past, and especially these allegations that he made racist remarks and torpedo, torpedoed effectively a black agent's career. Um, you know, there's still a lot we don't have answers for. The, the DOJ denied in a statement to, to the reload that, Chipman has any sort of racial bias, um, and they claim that he he had had two complaints filed against him. Uh, one we believe is related to the racist the racist the allegation of racist comments in Detroit, um, and the DOJ said that those complaints were found to be meritless. But we don't have any um, we don't have a copy of the complaints. We aren't able to see what was actually alleged. In writing, um, <clears throat> we don't see why he was cleared, why they were judged to be meritless. Uh, we don't have a copy of the investigation into right. the the agent that Chipman uh, initiated. We, you know, there's a lot that hasn't <clears throat> been fully answered on all all of these things, and so it, it'll be interesting to see if anyone else, frankly, outside of uh, conservative media or at the Reload or takes any interest in this they haven't so far they've kind of you know buried the story they right. occasionally it's been mentioned in passing in some of the major outlets but there's been very little follow-up on it <clears throat> and it's almost as though it doesn't matter <laughs> whether right. any of this is true to some of the people covering this story which is disconcerting to me frankly i i would like to know if this person who's going to be put into a government position as a bias against African-Americans or not. I mean, he hasn't even come out and made any statements uh, denying any of this. Uh, neither has the White House, frankly. The DOJ right. has uh, on his behalf, I guess. But, but he's been silent, hasn't answered any questions. And we haven't seen the core documents at the center of all this stuff. So, Right. And to, uh, to that point, I, you I know, when the, when the White House was giving that statement, they weren't even asked about the comments. Um, and just the fact that a lot of these media outlets didn't pick up the story that that we were covering um, kind of allows that to happen. They never had to answer for those questions, especially even now that they're planning for a future role for him in the federal government. Yeah, it, it's pretty, it's pretty concerning. Uh, but it, there's also the question of what happens now with the ATF director nominee. And I, I, I have a piece over at the reload, a member exclusive piece. Uh, by the way, if you join the reload.com, not only will you get access to member exclusive pieces like this one, but you'll get the podcast a day early. So make sure you go over to the reload.com and check out some of our membership options. But in that piece, I discuss, you know, what's the path forward for the white house. Now that they pulled Chipman, it's difficult actually to see how they're going to get another opportunity to get someone confirmed in the president's first term. And obviously, he's not guaranteed to have a second term and get another opportunity like this. Because the problem is, 
and I, you know, I expound a lot more on this in the piece, but the problem is now that they've withdrawn Chipman, best case scenario is they have some sort of deal already worked out with Angus McQueen or Angus, Angus King. I keep mixing up those two. <laughs> Did this on Cam Edwards show too, but uh, Angus King, the Senator from Maine, uh, Maybe they have some deal worked out with him and the other moderates for a replacement candidate. Uh, I know that uh, a source told me that when King met with the White House, he presented at least two names for consideration. And both of those are, well, one is the current acting director, uh, Richardson, and, and another one is, is a former uh, acting director from 2019. And, and so he's putting forth these sort of career ATF guys who don't have the same sort of uh, explicit uh, work with gun control groups that that uh, Chipman had, and as of now, don't have the same kinds of questions about his character that were raised by former ATF agents uh, in the reload pieces. Because it also went beyond, obviously, the the racial aspect. A lot of these guys were concerned about his temperament and that he might retaliate against uh, agents who don't share his point of view on on gun control, um, and, and that his his adversarial stance towards the industry could actually harm the ability of the agency to carry out its main mission of arresting criminals who traffic in guns or try, try to buy guns. But, right. um, you know, even if they have this deal where they've got an, another nominee already in mind, who's more palpable to some of these moderate Democrats, it's going to be difficult to get anyone through the process before the end of this year. Uh, especially given all the other things that they have coming up, like the debt limit, the budget, <laughs> the the, uh, the big spending bill that they're still fighting over. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be on the Senate's calendar that aren't movable for something like an ATF nominee. And then, then you're getting into an election year in 2022, which just makes moderate Democrats less likely to want to talk about this issue at all, let alone vote on an actual nominee, unless they're far less controversial than David Chipman was. And then the problem with that is if you find a less controversial nominee than David Chipman, are they going to be somebody that the gun control groups who employed and pushed Chipman are actually excited about, like that, that they're going to be happy with? Right. Because... I don't think that's a guarantee at all. Uh, and so you're stuck in this catch-22 situation. And, and then you have to rely on the midterms being better for Democrats than everyone expects them to be. Not only holding the Senate, but probably gaining a seat or two so they can make this, this path to 50 easier. And that's where, like, you get into territory of thinking maybe there's no real opportunity to appoint somebody that's going to actually get through right at all in the first term before the next presidential election. If he, and then obviously if he wins re-election re and they have a big year, that's just so far off in politics. It might as well be a hundred years into the future. Exactly. But, you know, th that's what they feel like they need to get what they actually want. Right. So, uh, you know, the, uh, there's a there's a lot going on with, with the Chipman nomination, and you know, the, I, I also should say just real quick that uh, this is exactly why the reload 
exists. This is why I founded it to report these kinds of stories that other people were either unwilling or unable to report. I haven't seen any other outlets from the New York Times to the Washington Post, to Politico, CNN, whoever you'd name, Fox News included, that have been able to actually get ATF agents to talk to them about any of this. It's remarkable. And, you know, to me, that's either because they're not trying as hard as they might with a Donald Trump nominee or a George Bush nominee, or it's because they simply don't have the same kind of sourcing that we do. Either way, I think it shows how important the reload is uh, in the grand scheme of things and what, what we can really accomplish here, even though we're frankly a tiny outlet that's entirely funded by our readership. So uh, I just think that's important to note. Like this is where the reload has real impact. This is how much what we do can influence things that, that happen at the highest levels of government. This is only the second nominee that Joe Biden has had to pull from consideration. And it it's difficult, it's impossible to look at the situation and think that the reload stories had no effect on that, uh, because I think it's plainly obvious that they had a significant effect, even without the additional coverage from other major media outlets. So, um, I just figure I want to say that, uh, and, and obviously we have a lot of other things that happened this week. Uh, you know, this was the most important thing. So I wanted to commit, uh, you know, a significant amount of time to it, but we also had, uh, Jake did a great piece on, um, the pistol brace ban, which the comment period ended on, uh, this week, right? Jake, what, what day did it end? Yeah. Wednesday at midnight it ended. And how many comments did the get? published that a little over 209,000 comments, um, which right. is and as they've acknowledged some of the highest comments they've ever had on a federal rule change. Um, so it's a pretty big yeah, deal. Absolutely. And you, and you were able to get the ATF to give you, um, comment on that, that situation and tell you what, what's next for, uh, the rulemaking process there, where things go from here, uh, which people can head over and read. Uh, that's obviously a huge story that's going to potentially impact millions of, of gun owners in America who, who own uh, AR-15s with pistol braces and other firearms. Uh, then we also had uh, Dick Heller filed a new lawsuit uh, the, of Heller VDC fame from the landmark uh, Supreme Court case. He is now going after the city over its ban on ghost guns, which is actually really a ban on all manufacturing of firearms, even if you're licensed by the federal government to do so, um, which we wrote about that as well. Got an exclusive comment from Heller himself uh, in the piece, which I don't believe any other outlet has either. Uh, same for the ATF comment on the brace piece. So, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happened this week. Uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, but the Chipman stuff was the most important, but there was really a lot going on and we covered it all. And in fact, uh, there was also a lawsuit, a defamation lawsuit filed by the Virginia Citizens Defense League against uh, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence over uh, this labeling of the gun group as a domestic terror organization, which we actually now are going to go over to my interview with the head of the VCDL about this situation, as well as the Virginia governorship rates, which is heating up right now, 
this is an off-year election, and it's one that has a lot of consequences, most likely for gun owners in, in Virginia. So we're going to discuss all that with Philip Van Cleve here next. So make sure you stay tuned. I'm here with Philip Van Cleve, who's the president of the Virginia Citizens Defense League. Philip, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization? Yeah, the Virginia Citizens Defense League was formed back in late 1994 at a time in Virginia when you had to beg permission to get a concealed carry permit. And uh, some people couldn't get them at all. Others could get them easily. It was just unfair. So we that's what we formed, and that's what we uh, uh, basically got overturned the very first year. That was quite a victory. Sure. So uh, we are a uh, – we not only lobby – the General Assembly to protect our gun rights. Um, we also are a watchdog if local government or the state government decides to um, uh, do something that's unconstitutional or attack our gun rights or do something illegal, we get involved, including lawsuits if necessary. Uh, and we're also an educational organization. Our members really understand uh, gun rights, firearms in general, the whole bit. We, uh, Our focus is gun rights and nothing else. Sure, sure, certainly. And obviously you're a grassroots organization, um, and, and you've been working in, in Virginia for the last oh, almost 13 years now, right? Is, is that, has it been that long since the 90s, since 94? <laughs> I guess I feel kind yeah, of old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so we wrote about uh, a new lawsuit that you guys filed the other day. It's actually a defamation, defamation lawsuit filed against the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence because they labeled your group a domestic terror organization in uh, several press releases, I believe is the claim here. Um, I've reached out to them for comment, and they didn't, they didn't respond, although it did. I was able to, see, to find... Um, a cached version of of their one of their initial press releases that did contain the the phrase that you're that you're you know taking issue with obviously uh, and then the current version that's on their website now has that phrase re has been removed so obviously something has happened to to do that I won't do you, have you heard anything back from them yet uh, in this case. No, I haven't heard a peep yet. Um, they have uh, until the 18th, so they still got a few, more, you know, another week or so to respond. Um, yeah, they uh, they put that in their um, press release. Uh, there were there was at least one paper that I know of uh, that um, published that as is, uh, including the defamatory language. Um, so uh, we put something in our alert system, which the other side monitors. Uh, we know that they monitor, which is, we don't care. Uh, but uh, they saw that we picked up on that and that that was indeed a real problem. And so, lo and behold, the next day, the word the wording magically changed. But we'd already gotten copies of it. It's it's out, like I say, another another me, uh, publication had put it, uh, put it mm -hmm. out as, you know, as was written by them. So um, it's uh, it's a little too late to be uh, the, the damage has been and done. Sir, uh, obviously, I, I guess it should be clear to make clear here: the, the VCDL has never been involved in any sort of violence or advocated for violence uh, of any sort, and has never been labeled a domestic terror organization by any law enforcement group, anything like that. Correct? 
No, we have law enforcement members. We have um, you know people with security clearances. We're a slice of America. No, we've ne never had. In fact, our our relationship with police departments has been outstanding. Um, we've uh, we you know we've uh, certainly worked with uh, the Capitol Police, Fairfax Police, Richmond Police. We've coordinated with them. We're we're um, we're very much a um, uh, an organization that believes in in, in law and order and. And rights, and we've had you know zero problems because uh, that's how we are. We're not expecting to have any problems. We we try to be careful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I suppose that's why you're concerned by these comments from uh, the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Yeah, we've had uh, we had some of our members saying, well, well you know, if gosh, if you're classified as, as a domestic terror organization, I you know I've got a security clearance. I can't be a, affiliated with that if that were true. Um, same thing with police officers and so forth. Yeah, that uh, that's in, that's caused grief amongst our membership, mm. and it's the, the attempt is to damage our credibility when we, uh, you know, when we fight uh, our fights uh, in the courts and um, in the general assembly. Sure. And uh, now, obviously, you guys uh, are not new to this sort of situation. You filed a, uh, a defamation lawsuit against uh, Katie Couric. Back a couple of years ago, over her documentary where she took some of your members out of context uh, by editing in a, a period of silence that made them appear as though they didn't have an answer to one of her questions. Uh, however, obviously that that uh, suit didn't succeed. So why, you know, why do you think this one will? Especially, you know, given how difficult it is to actually succeed with a defamation lawsuit uh, in court. Well, uh, it's sort of apples and oranges uh, in, in how the, those two suits are and what, what happened in both cases. In the first case with Katie Couric, it was a matter of editing in, as you mentioned, um, total silence where we actually had a response to a question she asked. It looked like we were dumbfounded. Um, and so that gave the wrong impression. And now you're into impressions and other things. It's, it's just very different than somebody coming out and saying uh, that we are a domestic terror organization. Uh, when you do that, that's just a whole different world. It, it might be one thing if I said, well, I, I don't know, I think uh, Stephen Gutowski, uh, I don't know, he looks like a criminal type to me as far as I'm concerned. That'd be very different than me saying um, Stephen Gutowski was involved in a rape in Louisiana in, in 2002. Right. Very different world. Now you've been accused of something that could cost you your family, cost you your job. Um, you know, otherwise I'm just pontificating. People ignore other people's pontifications, but you state something like that as fact, and that's in essence what they've done to us. Okay. It's very different than the moment of silence that they put in that Katie Couric put in. Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> but obviously, you know that these cases are very difficult to win generally, even even with statements of fact like your like you're talking about here, um, oftentimes, especially when you're dealing with an organization like uh, Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, which is very hyperbolic in how it puts out its press releases. Uh, you know, oftentimes I, it seems to me just, you know, I'm not an expert in the field, so I don't, I don't want anyone to take anything definitive from what, what I'm saying here. But my, my observations of these sorts of suits is that they oftentimes will, will fail even when the facts are sort of indisputed. Like, obviously, you want, 
not a domestic terror organization in, in, in any sort of uh, factual sense of that label. Um, but, you know, you see this a lot with um, media figures being sued for making outrageous statements about uh, other people with, with VCDL being a, you know, a, a well-known public group. The standard is so high in those cases that uh, it can be very difficult to uh, meet it and actually get a result. Although, you know, I suppose you can also get results without getting a judgment in your favor, I guess, I guess would be another thing. I mean, they've already changed, they've already taken out the language that you're uh, upset about. So they've had some effect already. Um, but, yeah, but, but yeah, I guess. But that has no legal, that has no legal effect. Right. Um, the, uh, the courts have ruled a while back that making a correction like that, uh, it's not something you can use against an organization, nor can they use it in their favor. Mm. Um, the example given to me was if uh, somebody uh, was walking on your sidewalk and they tripped and they broke their leg, oh, because you had a, 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 a stone out of place, uh, a paver or something, and uh, they sued you over that and you went and fixed the paver. Well, the courts want you to fix a problem so somebody else doesn't have it, but they can't get, they can't, they don't want to, in order to encourage you to do that, they don't want to penalize you and say, oh, see, he fixed that paper. He knew it was a problem. Oh, nor do they want to give you an advantage to say, well, I fixed it. The case is over now. So they just say it's neutral. You know, we, it's good that you fixed it. Doesn't help you. Doesn't mm -hmm. hurt you. Um, so, but certainly, uh, that's, uh, yeah, certainly you recognize that the bar is, is high in these situations, but you're, yes, but you're is. confident. But we went, to, we went to somebody that's a specialist in this and they, uh, they definitely thought we should move forward. With okay. This. And so what's the next step they have until the 18th to respond and then, and then the case moves forward from there. Yeah, well, basically, we, we uh, look at their response, and then um, I guess we respond to their response. Uh, and from there, I guess it's, it's really going to be a matter then of, of um, scheduling, a, getting a court date set, um, and we're requesting a jury. Okay. And this is in Fairfax County, Virginia, right? In yes. Civil court? Uh -huh. Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. Well, 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 we'll stay on top of that for sure here at the Reload to see what comes of this case. Um I think it'll be interesting to follow, certainly. But another interesting area <clears throat> where you guys are involved is in the Virginia elections, which are which are coming up right now because Virginia has off-year elections, uh, and they tend right. to favor the party that's uh, out of power in, as, as far as the presidency goes, which would be Republicans in this case. And you've got, uh, obviously, Glenn Youngkin is a, sort of a, a newcomer. He hasn't run for statewide office before. He's running for governor against Terry McAuliffe, who obviously was the previous governor before uh, Ralph Northam. Uh, now, you guys, interestingly, the PAC, your PAC, your political action committee, has not endorsed uh, Glenn Youngkin uh, to this point. Why is that? Uh, Glenn has not returned a survey. We have a survey that we send out to all candidates, uh, and we then tabulate the results. But that... you. We, we have had a fixed rule forever that said, you know, if you don't do a survey, you cannot get an endorsement from the PAC. Uh, we need to have solid information on your beliefs and, and, and uh, where you would take us. We've got to know that. Um, and uh, we, 
so that's and, and the NRA's in the, was in the same boat. That's exactly the reason they listed why they didn't endorse him. And just like them, uh, I, you know, I believe we're going to be endorsed or have endorsed uh, the other two candidates on the on the on the ticket. Uh, uh, so, which, um, which low? The lieutenant governor and the attorney general. Lieutenant governor and attorney general. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, who are those candidates in this case? Um, uh, uh, Delegate Miares um, is uh, uh, running for attorney general, um, and um, oh, my mind just went blank. Um, uh, the, the the lady running for uh, lieutenant governor. Uh, sorry, my. Oh, it's just, okay. I can't remember her name off the top of my head either. Heart. But the Republican in the race, uh, correct? Yeah. Yes, they're both Republicans. Right. And uh, now, obviously, <clears throat> Terry McAuliffe is is staunchly uh, pro gun control and and has supported as governor even uh, confiscation of firearms, is uh, like the AR-15 from Virginians. So presumably, you are quite opposed to him winning. Uh, yeah, election. absolutely. Yeah, um, there, there's no doubt uh, that uh, he we totally opposed, and he, you know, he's already showed us what he can do. Right. Uh, so um, we're totally opposed to that. The, the problem is, you, you end up with this uh, what I would call a lack of enthusiasm uh, factor. Where, for example, Glenn Youngkin can say, "Well, I, I'm better than than, than Terry McAuliffe." And, I have no doubt that would be the case. It would be hard not to be better than, than Terry McCall. Mm-hmm. But um, the, uh, the, what you lack is enthusiasm. Where gun owners would say, wow, did you see how what Yunkin believes in? Would you, can you see how he would, boy, you know, whatever the issue would be, they could then be excited about it. Gee, I can't wait to tell my friends. I can't wait to get out and vote for this guy because we really need him. As opposed to, well, he's better than the other guy. You know, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll get the vote, but you're not going to get the enthusiasm, which in turn could mean that you won't get as many votes as you could have. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the problem. Yeah, and uh, it's been done before and not successfully, where the the base was kind of left hanging on on things like that. You know, you really need your base. You may be trying to reach out further to other things, but you can't lose your base while you're doing it. You're, you seem very popular today. <laughs> you got a lot of uh, yeah, the phone notifications. Uh, I imagine it's a very busy time right now for for VCDL. And by the way, it's Winsome Sears. I don't know why. I just said that she, she's the uh, the Republican uh, uh, running uh, guest for for Lieutenant Governor. My my mind went blank. Winsome Sears, and I very 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 nice black lady that I've known for quite a while, and she is uh, she's really sharp, and she's a very, very strong on gun rights. Right, yeah. And and you obviously, as you just articulated here, uh, you think that that lack of endorsement from groups like your group, your PAC, and the NRA uh, will have a tangible effect on, on the race. I mean, what do you think that Youngkin is trying to, uh, I guess, triangulate a position where he's not actively angering gun owners but also isn't courting them? Uh, because perhaps that he views that as disadvantageous. I think he's. I think, yeah, I think he's trying to kind of. Um, it may be a situation where he thinks that the gun owners are going to vote for him, and therefore he can lie low on on that and try to get push some other issues that might be of of interest. I uh, I don't know. That's like I say, if that's the case, it's been tried before, and uh, I don't not and not successfully. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. 
Uh, I don't know. I, I, I wish he would just simply fill out the survey. That would make life a lot easier for everybody, but I don't think he's going to do, do it. What do you see uh, as far as the rest of the election goes for the House of Delegates and the Senate? Where, where you know, what's your feeling in, in those races? Obviously, Democrats have a thin majority in both chambers right now. They have control of the governorship. Thin. If Republicans take back just a single House or the governorship, presumably that will prevent uh, a lot of the kinds of policies that Democrats attempted to pass, although I mean, even with full control, they weren't able to pass some of the most extreme uh, policies that they had uh, that they had pushed for. And actually, uh, uh, the delegate who put up the assault weapons ban, the AR-15 confiscation bill, uh, lost his reelection uh, in, in a primary. Yes, yes, uh, we were celebrating that one. Uh, so, what, what's your long yeah, view on this? How do you think the election is shaping up right now? Well, gun owners are fed up. I mean, they have really pushed us, stepped on us, kicked us. Um, yeah, they, they, they had the backpedal on their agenda, but they still put in a whole bunch of stuff that's doing nothing for crime. Crime has been going up. We knew it would. They, they, they were, they're meddling with gun rights. They should not do that. So gun owners are fed up. Um, a lot of people are fed up in all different directions, but gun owners are particularly. Everybody has been paying attention to this. They're tired of it. So, um, and the other thing that's interesting is the Republicans have somebody running in every single House seat. They've never, I don't think they've ever done that before. Every one of the Democrats is being challenged. <clears throat> and um, this was something that caused a lot of uh, anger, I guess, amongst uh, gun owners last time around that, that there were like 40 Democrats, I forget what the number was, that were unopposed. It was like, well, you know, now we're, we're telling people if you've got somebody that historically has been horrible on guns and, uh, you know, you've been stuck with them, there was nobody running against them. You now have somebody to vote for. You now have the opportunity to go to the polls and vote for somebody else. And if enough of you are fed up with this, it, it could produce some some turnaround. So the, I guess, as you say, they uh, Democrats. And, you know, it's not that we're partisan here, but the fact is that it's hard to find a Democrat right now. They've all basically, like like a bunch of lemmings, have turned into a bunch of gun control people. Didn't used to be that way. Um, you have one Democrat in the House that had a 100% voting record. She stands alone by herself. That's Delegate Tyler. Um, the next best one was at 50%, and all the rest of them, as far as gun rights voting, they were down in the in a single digit or even zeros. While the Republicans, uh, the vast majority of Republicans, had a hundred percent voting record on guns. So it's 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 a divide that, uh, in this case, the Democrat Party is putting forward. You know, we're not imagining it; they're doing it. And uh, that's why um, they're they're not real. They're not getting endorsements because uh, the PAC would be happy to endorse uh, a Democrat if they were standing up for gun rights. They have done that in the past, but boy, not this time around. What about what about um, some of these Democrats in the Senate who blocked, you know, the assault weapons ban, for instance? Uh, what, yeah. What's VCDL's well, that, they're they're up for election in two years. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. But, yeah, they're, they're, the, the Senate still has some Democrats that um, are, are not 100 percent on board with gun control. And, uh, in fact, they, as you said, they blocked, they worked together with the Republicans to block uh, more attacks on, on our right to defend ourselves. 
and uh, they, they played an important role, and they will continue to. Um, so these elections are critical. November 2nd, uh, if the gun owner sits this out, then he, you know, basically, I don't want to hear from him that there's a problem. You need to get out and vote. Uh, and we have early voting that's starting up. Well, that's something the Democrats wanted, and I think we gun owners need to take full advantage of that and, and make sure we vote. Vote early. That way you don't have to worry about yet another round of COVID coming up, uh, shutting down everything and making it hard to vote. Do it now. Get it over with. Get your vote in there. Get your family's vote in there. Let's let, they, they put that out there. Fine. Let's take full advantage of that and make sure all of our friends, everybody's voted long before November. That makes sense. Now, uh, obviously, one of the biggest successes that VCDL has had in recent years is uh, the Second Amendment sanctuary movement uh, that you were part of, uh, uh, you know, amplifying, I guess would be perhaps the right word for it. But, uh, you know, the, that in that case, more than 90 percent of the, the state's counties, including some purplish counties uh, in northern Virginia, uh, Virginia Beach area, uh, passed resolutions, you know, essentially saying they wouldn't enforce new forms of, of gun control that they find uh, unconstitutional were they to pass. And so do you think that you can take that momentum from uh, what now has been a year and a half, two years uh, since that that sort of grassroots sweep across the state came into play and culminated with your rally, uh, your your lobby day in 2020, right before uh, sort of the last uh, the last big event before everything went crazy uh, uh, over COVID, obviously. Uh, do you think you can recapture that momentum that was built through that movement and apply it to this election? Like how, how much, uh, with everything that's happened in the intervening times and how much the country has changed, the state has changed with this pandemic and uh, you know, a number of the other things that have happened, rioting and the change in the presidency and uh, all the stuff we've seen in that time period to take people's attention away from this issue. Can you realistically get those same people out to the polls now in, in this off-year election? I I certainly believe we can and certainly hope that we can. Um one of the things that uh, would be on the top of our list, for example, is to get rid of the law that allowed local gun control. Put that back to where it was uh, for the you know the previous uh, seventeen years or whatever it was. Put it back to that. To get rid of local gun control. We don't have any of our other civil rights that we divide up that way and say, well, oh, um, you're you're going into Fairfax, so your First Amendment rights don't really apply there the way they do in the rest of the state. We don't do that. It's only guns that we say, oh, well, that's an exception. We'll let we'll let that have we'll, we'll change the law so everywhere you travel, you got to have new rules. That's ridiculous. We need to stop all of that. Um, so that would I think um, I think that we can see some motion on that because they that's what. That was one of the very things that we were fighting when we had those huge uh, Second Amendment sanctuary, that Second Amendment sanctuary movement, uh, the, the map that's of Virginia that's almost solid green. And, um, and if you notice, the localities that have tried to pass local gun control are, uh, with the exception of one that's not done anything yet but is looking at it, they're all the ones that were not in the green part of that map. They're part of the 6% or 5% that um, that never said they were a sanctuary and have been the, the same 
sort of tyrannical movement on their side to, to, to dominate over gun owners and take away their rights in government buildings and parks and everything else. So um, overall, that, that sanctuary movement, I think, was, was very, very good, and I think it's, it's, it's continuing to pay some dividends. Surrey County is the exception to this. Uh, they had passed that, but then they had an election and got some new people on, on their uh, board of supervisors, and so we're, we're keeping an eye on them. Uh, so far, they haven't done anything, but they're, they're rumbling about it. And that's a very rural county. Again, none of these localities have any excuse for, for controlling the rights of law-abiding citizens. Virtually none of them have had any problems in their government buildings, um, but they do it anyhow just because they can. Sure. And what, what do you think a realistic scenario is for the repeal of that law or some of these other uh, gun, gun control laws that got passed uh, you know, in, in the 2020 session? Uh, how many seats do you know, either pro-gun candidates are, you know, essentially mostly Republicans in this case, need to pick up uh, to actually get something like that through. Like, I imagine you'd need uh, control. Would you need control of all three branches to, to get that repeal through? What's your, what's your view on it? Well, the, they, I think the Republicans would need six seats um, in the House to flip it over to where they're back in control. Um, they could then hopefully pass it uh, the repeal, and then that would go to the Senate. And there we would be looking at some of the Democrats that have voted and stood with gun owners in some of these issues to stand up on this and say, yeah, this, this, is, this doesn't work. This is a problem. Um, it's now very hard for gun owners to know where they can and can't carry in Virginia compared to where it was. So we're... Um, uh, then, then uh, you know, if if we can influence, uh, get enough votes there to get it out of the, out of the house, then it's a function of who's the governor. If it's a governor that's anti-gun, then they'll veto it, and we won't have any chance of an override in the current configuration. Um, if it's pro-gun, then we could well get the job done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Although I, I suppose uh, even McAuliffe uh, has made deals. Uh, that resulted in pro-gun legislation uh, passing with the uh, concealed carry expansion a few years back uh, after the unilateral attempt by the Attorney General to restrict uh, reciprocity with other states backfired pretty significantly. Um, Yeah, Herring really misunderestimated that. He's he's just, his head is, our current... Attorney General's head is so strongly set against gun rights, he hates them, that, you know, he's, he does things on, on impulse, I think. But, um, yeah, he did that. And then the, the backlash on telling Virginia's, well, at the time it was probably, right now we have 700,000 permit holders in this state. Back then, I think it was like 500,000, still half a million. That's a lot of people, a lot of voters and stuff. And uh, when when he did that, the backlash was so strong that even some of the Democrats were going, we got to do something about this. Um, And um, so uh, Herring got thrown under the bus and rolled over a few times. Uh, He didn't go to any of the the celebration of of the signing of that bill, or there were a couple of minor gun control bills that that got signed along with it. That was kind of part of the deal. Um, And, uh, of course, um, McAuliffe, really touted, oh, what these uh, what these gun control bills would do, um, which we were just sort of, uh, you know, kind of yawning. 
Um, and uh, just briefly mentioned this thing about reciprocity. He did it because he wanted those other. He wanted some some kind of a victory on gun control, mm-hmm. uh, which he hadn't had, even if it was a, a very very minor thing. Uh, so, um, you know, he, he's done deals before. I don't I don't know. I certainly wouldn't be counting on any any deals. I think um, if anything, he he's probably gotten a little more radical since in the last four right. years. So what's your next initiative for this election? What's VCDL up to right now? Well, um, we're, we're continuing to educate our members. We're continuing to remind them that elections are November 2nd to get their friends and family out. Uh, we'll be uh, pushing, again, hard to say, you know, get go ahead and vote absentee, get your ballots, get those in, do it now, get it, get it over with. Um, we um, will uh, probably be running a, a few advocacy ads uh, in the media coming up soon, right before the voting starts. So we're we're working on things of that nature. Again, it's important for people to understand um, the history of of, of what's gone on, um, including things that McAuliffe has done. So uh, you know, it's, people sometimes tend to forget. And what he said he's going to be doing in his current, uh, um, you know, as he's running for office, he's been talking about all kinds of things, assault weapon bans and, and so forth. Right. And uh, we want to make sure people are aware of that. Certainly. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us a little bit about the suit that you guys are involved with, as well as the upcoming ele- election here in Virginia. I'm actually in Alexandria, Virginia, for anyone who's, who isn't aware of that already and uh, have experienced the local gun control laws. Well, my condolences. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful place to live, but certainly, uh, I. It's a pretty yes, area, but, but they they do have they one of the areas that passed uh, the the local restrictions that you referred to earlier, and and it does have a real world everyday impact on me personally and lots of people who live around here, of course. But uh, but yeah, we'll we'll have you back on hopefully again in the future, maybe when the election gets a little bit closer to give us uh, the inside view of what's what's happening on the ground uh, in the gun rights movement in the state. So uh, really appreciate you coming on and we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate being on. All right. I'm here with John McAdams, who's a Reload member. This is part of our new segment where we talk to some of the Reload members, try to get to know people in, in our new community here. Uh, if you want to join the Reload and become a member yourself, you can head over to thereload.com uh, where you can look at the options to buy a monthly uh, membership or a yearly membership where you actually get two months for free. So, uh, John, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, you know, how, wh- how'd you get into guns? Uh, you know, where are you from? That sort of thing. What do you do? Sure thing, Stephen. First off, it's great being on the podcast. Thanks a lot for having me today. Uh, I'm originally from Texas. That's actually where uh, uh, I live now after a long, uh, long and winding road to kind of take me back here. Um, I grew up with guns. Uh, my dad and my grandfather were both uh, big into shooting and hunting as well. And so I started accompanying, accompanying them a field from a very young age. And um, uh, my dad was in the Army. He was in law enforcement. Um, I followed him down the Army path. I served uh, 10 years. And so I lived kind of all over the country and hunted in a lot of different places in my time in the in the military. And uh, so it was something I always enjoyed. And then when I got out of the Army, 
um, I decided to go to work for myself, providing a resource that provides kind of a sober, serious, like no, you know, no baloney look at, okay, this is, this is the information that, that can really help you getting started or taking your hunting game to the next level, regardless mm -hmm. if you want to be hunting deer or going to Africa or hunting elk or something like that. Wonderful. And now you uh, run a podcast too called the, the Big Game Hunting Podcast, right? That's right. Yeah. So I started the Big Game Hunting blog back in 2012, still write for it, and then uh, started the Big Game Hunting Podcast in uh, 2019. And that's also still going strong. And I've actually been on that podcast too. If people want to head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever the their favorite podcasting app is to check it out, they, they totally should. Um, but what made you uh, move from you know, your sort of traditional kinds of, of, of hunting that you see in most parts of the country, you know, white-tailed deer and, and hogs and things like that, into big game. What what was that transition like? What what motivated it? Sure. So, you know, like you said, I grew up hunting white-tailed deer in, in, in a typical way that a lot of people do. I hunted from a deer stand, and uh, it was kind of waiting for animals to come by. And it was a lot of fun, and I had many really good years doing that. But my time in the military took me to a lot of different places, New York, Kentucky, Georgia, Washington, El Paso. Uh, so especially when I went uh, up to Washington, the type of game that they had there was very different. There are white-tailed deer, black-tailed deer, mule deer in Washington. Uh, but especially in the eastern part of the state, it's much more open and it lends itself to a different type of hunting, more of a spot and stalk type approach uh, where it's much more proactive, where you get up on a knob and you start looking for a game yourself. Once you spot it, then you make a move on it and, and try and get within shooting range. And so it's a much more proactive, more uh, exciting ways to hunt in, in, in many cases. And so I really started enjoying that type of hunting. And then when I moved down to El Paso, it really continued. And I hunted in Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, uh, when I lived out in West Texas. And also, as you can imagine, living in the Southwest like that, much more open terrain, you can see really far. Your game densities aren't as high there, but you can see so much farther. Uh, and so... In many, in many cases, you will spot more game in those type of areas than you would hunting in really thick forest uh, in many places east of the Mississippi. So it was a type of hunting I really enjoyed. The country was beautiful. The game was very interesting and unique, uh, all fun to hunt in their own ways uh, that way. And so you have to answer your question, it was really kind of just where I lived. And it was one of those things that a lot of people, you see hunting TV shows of people hunting elk and mule deer and, and whatnot. So I was always curious about it. So it was really fun to get out there and, and get a chance to hunt a lot of those animals myself. No, that's fascinating. I, I, you know, I think it's interesting to talk to, you know, hunters like yourself, because I, I'm not a hunter myself. And I always want to find out why people, uh, you know, engage in the kind of uh, different uses of guns that they do. And, and this is an area where you know, there's, first of all, there's a lot of sort of, uh, misinformation out there on hunting and, uh, conservation and, uh, and the, the connection between those two things. Um, and, and it's also, you know, a lot of people who don't understand the culture, uh, of hunting. Uh, and so it's, I think it's good to have somebody on who, who does understand who does the hunting and, uh, all sorts of different game and, and, uh, get your point of view as to why, you know, why you do this, why, why you think more people uh, moved into hunting over the last year with the pandemic, right? I mean, there was a lot of, there were meat shortages and there was uh, a lot of your traditional sort of hobbies got shut down. Uh, so I guess that moved people into 
wanting to try hunting for themselves again or for the first time. Uh, have you seen that yourself? Uh, have you noticed that trend? And if so, well, like, what, do you think's, what do you think that's driving it? Is, is it those factors or is there something else going on too? I, th I think those are the two primary factors you just talked about with one, you know, just kind of uncertainty of what's going on. You want to get access to your, to your own, uh, your own meat. And uh, on, on a good year, right, I can go a whole year and, and not eat any store-bought meat. You, know, you shoot a couple of deer, you shoot an elk, something like that. You can get, uh, you know, several hundred pounds of meat off of a, off of a big bull elk and even more if it's a moose. Um, and there was already kind of a push going that way anyway in, in the years prior to COVID where mm -hmm. more and more people were starting to take a more interest in where their food was coming from. And, you know, so like I said, there was a lot of people that were just becoming interested in hunting for the meat and food aspects of it. COVID accelerated that with the issues that were going on with the meat factories and just uncertainty of what was going on. And then at the same time, I think people were just looking for something to do last year. You couldn't go to concerts or sporting events or any of that sort of thing. And so uh, one of the things you could do was go spend time outside. So people started hiking, camping, hunting, fishing. And uh, so there were people that came to hunting for the first time for those reasons. And there were also a lot of people that used to hunt for whatever reason that uh, started hunting again in 2020 or 2021 due to a lot of those same factors. You know, I couldn't tell you exactly how many people started hunting, you know, for the first time or, or you know, kind of returned to it last year. I know that uh, Arizona saw over 20,000 additional applicants from uh, 2019 to 2020 in their antelope and uh, elk draw. And so that's just that's just one state for one draw that they had. So we're talking tremendous numbers of people that have that have started to do that in the last year. And, you know, uh, traffic to my uh, listeners for my podcast really speak. Uh, really spiked traffic from my blog went through the roof you know 2020 was you know easily my best year ever as far as traffic goes and it's continued into into 2021 is there's so many people want to talk about guns and and, and and all of that stuff especially you know that is my focus on the hunting side of things and right. my most popular articles were always cartridge comparisons you know the 270 versus the 30 odd six which one should you be hunting with for the sort of hunting that you do? And I think there was a lot of people, you know, so that sort of thing. I think there was a lot of people that um, they wanted to learn how to hunt last year. And they're like, I have no idea where to start. I've heard a 6.5 Creedmoor is really good. Should I buy one of those or a 30-06 or a 300 Win Mag or whatever? And so a lot of those people, I think, just did Google search for this stuff and found me uh, that way. And so that stuff was extremely popular. And so I've really focused my efforts really in the last year and a half on directing, you know, what it is that I'm producing on the podcast and on the blog to, to serve those people and, and what it is that they, that they're looking for and what they need. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so if people want to transition into hunting and then especially into big game hunting, uh, you know, perhaps for uh, traditional hunters who want <clears throat> to experience something different uh, than what they're used to, uh, obviously they could, they can go to your podcast, uh, on, on either Apple, Apple podcasts or other platforms and, and they can read your blog. What, what other sort of, uh, advice would you have for somebody who, who wants to make that transition? Sure. So another, another really good resource that I've put together, especially for a lot of those sort of people that one, like you said, either want to start hunting for the first time, or they already do some hunting and they want to uh, expand their horizons a little bit especially on the firearm side of things, is I put together a site called huntingguns101.com, 101. Um, I made a free ebook that people can sign up for and get there. And it talks about specifically what cartridges 
you need to be looking at to start off with. And that's just, like I said, especially if you don't own a gun or if you, um, or if you know, you want to go out to hunt elk or something like that, here's some recommendations on some places to start. And then, you know, if you want, I have, um, you know, more information that kind of follows onto that to talk about specific rifles that people need to be, uh, looking at optics, ammunition, all of that stuff. And it's one of those things that there's so much nuance in it, just like with everything else in the gun world, that you can really go down a rabbit hole with it. And there's so much garbage and misinformation out there and people fighting over that this is better than that. Um, I think a lot of people just want some straight no baloney information on, okay, this is what I want to do. What do I need to do that? And I kind of walk people through analyzing what it is that you're going to be hunting, where you're going to be hunting it, you know, what your budget's like, what you want as a person, how big you are, just what you think is cool. And then use all those things to kind of to decide what you need and then make some recommendations on what it is that, um, that, that would be best for you to be, uh, be using out there. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Um, that's part of the reason I want to do this, this segment is try and get to see what, uh, you know, the reload members are, are doing, uh, in the gun community. Uh, you know, I, 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 these aren't ads, but I think it's interesting to hear about some of the, uh, the work that you guys are, are doing inside of the gun community and to reach out to, uh, to newcomers or to people who are curious, you know, about different aspects of, of gun culture in America. Um, <clears throat> and in fact, uh, you know, it sounds like you have a very similar, uh, sort of motivation to what, to what I do with, with the reload, which is trying to, uh, you know, get at that sober, serious look at different aspects of, of gun culture and gun politics, uh, and gun policy, except you're applying it to specifically to hunting. Um, so what, what was it, uh, you know, just the last question here before we wrap up, what, what, uh, what was it that ap- appealed to you about the reload? Is it that approach that, that sort of brought you in or was there more to it than that? No, you're definitely right. You know, one, the fact that you were a gun owner and you clearly knew what you were talking about writing uh, in your articles, even before you, you uh, started the reload, I was familiar with some of your work elsewhere and I'd followed, I followed you on Twitter, you know, specifically for your coverage of a lot of things. Um, and you know, you clearly knew what you're talking about and you looked at it, um, through, through a different lens than what I was seeing elsewhere. I don't, I don't need hysteria or, or any of that stuff about, about anything. And really, uh, the, the, a lot of the coverage on guns really leans very hard one way or another I've found. Mm. And, um, I don't, I don't want a political, uh, activists telling me what the deal is with this new gun law. I want to know one, what the heck it means first. And so the fact that you know what you're talking about and you're able to kind of thread the needle uh, that way is, is very appealing to me. And the fact that you have unique coverage on um, that goes more in depth into the gun news and gun culture than, than I get elsewhere. Anything about guns, it seems like you read about it on CNN or, or even Fox news or something like that. It has a very shallow, um, uh, approach to doing things. It's just like what one inch thick. And whereas you can kind of dive into more detail on just what the heck all this stuff means. You know, for instance, you know, you, you recently published an article talking about what this new Texas abortion law could mean as far as potential avenues for gun control going forward that I hadn't even considered uh, until I read that. And right. um, you had uh, an interview, it, it might've been David French that you were talking about with this, about the uh, Supreme Court case with uh, New York concealed carry Mm-hmm. Here's some things that are like actually likely to happen 
um, depending on how the Supreme Court de uh, decides. Uh, and, you know, I had never run into any sort of analysis like that before. And so I really appreciated that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's always important, I think, to, to try and get some of that feedback and see what people are, are really enjoying about, uh, about the site. Um, and that is some of the stuff that I'm most proud of uh, personally for what we do, trying to offer a deeper understanding of what's going on and, and a less hysterical one, I, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also trying to, you know, talk to regular people inside the community like yourself, uh, who, uh, give us some insight into what gun owners, what big game hunters in this case are actually like, <laughs> instead of hearing caricatures of them, you know, elsewhere, or just allusions to who they are. Uh, you know, I think that's a really important thing as well. And, um, so if people want to join again, head over to the reload. And if you want to be featured in this segment as a reload member, uh, just make sure you respond to the member's email let me know. Uh, and we'll, we'll make it happen. I'm, I think find this one of the best segments so far, um, personally, cause I enjoy talking with you guys, getting to know some of the members a little bit better, but, but yes, thank you for coming on, John. Uh, people should go and check out your podcast, the big game hunting podcast uh on apple podcasts and, and everywhere else so uh thank you so much for your time and we will uh talk to another member another time thanks a lot it was a pleasure being on and that's all we've got for this week's episode of the weekly reload podcast uh tune in again next week for you know more more gun gun stuff uh in the meantime make sure you check out the reload.com and become a member. You'll get exclusive access to lots of posts, lots of analysis, including my look at what's ahead for the ATF director position and what President Biden might do now that he has pulled his favored nominee from consideration. Uh, and you'll also get this podcast a day early before everyone else. It's wonderful, wonderful benefit. Anyway, that's all we got. So I will see you again next time. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none. I made the devil run. I broke so many bones, but none of them were